Hello, a little word of warning that this podcast contains swears and use of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18 or anyone who thinks a wet dream means you want to go swimming. I'm ahead of the game. Hello all, welcome back to the Smut Drop. This is, of course, your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane, and on this week's show, I'll be looking at what we really think about when we're having sex and chatting about sex in South Asian culture with Sangeeta Palai. If you like what you hear, then please rate, review, or at least subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you're ready, because I am ready to rumble! It's a wrestling joke. Hello, listeners. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to start with a very quick, very simple question. What do you really think about when you're having sex? Are you going off on a wild erotic fantasy or are you thinking about when the bins need to go out? If you're worried that your partner is thinking about their shopping lists, then don't be. Honestly, it is super normal to have the most weirdest thoughts pop into your head mid-sesh. It's kind of nice to know I'm not alone, actually. In metro.co.uk this week, Alice Giddings did a mini poll to find out what was going on in your brains. And yeah, I'm going to skip to the end here because it does turn out that men really are thinking about their nan when they're trying to help them last longer. And men, (laughs) you really don't need to do that. It's fine. Uh, But for most of us, we're actually busy being super critical, mainly of ourselves. We have thoughts like, oh my God, I hope he's not looking at my bum hole. And am I any good at this? And some of it can stop us from really being in the moment. So it is no wonder that stop thinking and just be in the moment is at the top of the list. Now, some of my favourites were, oh my God, I need to fart. (laughs) I can highly relate. Uh, Why have you got the big light on? Very true. Why does anyone need the big light on? And did I actually hang up that work call or can everyone hear this? Very, very 2022 problem that. Uh, Overall, women's thoughts during sex tend to be slightly more critical than men's. And that usually stems from the difficulty of reaching an orgasm. We're so worried about whether we're doing it right or whether we're going to orgasm at the end that we just take our minds from the actual joy of climaxing. Now, weirdly, men who finish easily, sometimes a bit too easily, tend to have more positive thoughts about sex with their partner. See, that's much nicer than thinking about your nan, although I'm sure she is still very nice, but still there is a time and a place. So what have been some of your biggest intrusive thoughts? Has anyone really put a spanner in the works or did you just keep working on the spanner? (laughs) See what I did there? Look, feel free to let me know in all the usual places. In the meantime, let's go and chat to this week's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this week's guest is a feminist activist, a speaker who is tackling taboos and breaking down barriers for South Asian women and British Asian women everywhere. She founded the South Asian feminist network Soul Sutras and presents the multi-award winning Masala podcast for Bad Baities, 
and the occasional bad beta to openly discuss all things sex and sexuality. Basically, everything they're not supposed to talk about. And that is why I am delighted to welcome podcaster, presenter and all-round rebel, Sangeeta Pillai. Hello, Sangeeta. Woohoo! That's an amazing introduction. I was like... Who's she talking about? Like, honey, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. That's a, and I'm really impressed that you've got the beta right as well. That's like, you clearly have done your research. You're like, bad babies and bad beta. <laughs> Wonderful. I am so impressed. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations as well. We just had the podcast awards. And again, way lots of Masala podcasts coming up again and again. I'm very jealous. I'm jealous. That's what it is. <laughs> it's okay, Miranda. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to talk, I want to start off talking about you. Tell us a bit about your background and, and introduce yourselves to our to our lovely listeners. You grew up in a traditional family in Mumbai. So tell us about yourself and where that rebellious streak came from. So I think, I've thought about this a lot and people ask me this a lot. And I think I was just born like this. I was born rebellious. I don't know where it comes from because nobody in my family, they'd look at me and say, what happened to this child, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Why is she saying these things? Because I was, you know, I was the first woman in my family to ever have a job, to kind of branch out, to refuse to get married, to refuse to kind of even entertain the idea of an arranged marriage. And that's the kind of background I come from. Mm. So my family from Kerala, I grew up in Mumbai in very poor kind of circumstances. And growing up around me, all I saw was that women were just told that you'd grow up, you know, you'd find the man who would marry you. And that was it. And you'd have a couple of kids and that was your life. And that was the kind of the extent of your life's ambition as a woman. Mm. And nobody seemed interested particularly in anything beyond that. And I just kind of grew up and I just thought to myself, like, I don't want this life. Uh, I don't want this life where... My worth is just measured by somebody who wants to marry me, you know. Mm. I want to do things with my life. And I started saying a lot of things, I think. And I suspect a lot of it came from books because nothing around me at that point. This is 19 kind of 80s India, mm. Mumbai. Mm. We were very, we had like two channels and we weren't really kind of plugged into the global economy in quite the way that we are now. Mm. There's a lot of amazing feminism in India. But at that point, none of that existed. So I think it was books. It was an idea that I could have a life that was different from the one that I could see my mother had. And I don't know if you've come across this, but despite my mother kind of really loving me, the best she could expect for me was that a nice man would marry me. Yeah. You know, like that was the extent of the ambition that she could possibly see for me. Yeah. So it was just a lot of battling. So I was kind of fighting for the length of my hair to wear the clothes I wanted to wear, to have the friends I wanted to wear, uh, to have, to choose a career in advertising, to everything really was a battle. So that, that was my life, really. Wow. I mean, has that strength been, you know, that must come in useful now? Like, you're, you're still battling. So you started from an early age. It sounds like you've been in training. Very, very early age. <laughs> in fact, it's so funny. There's a photo of me. I think I must be like two or three years old. I don't know. I was really little. It's a black and white picture. I look really sassy. 
And the story I get told is that my mum and my aunt took me to the village photographer because that's what all the kids got taken, you know, when you were a couple of years old to have your photo taken. Yeah. And apparently this photographer kept asking me to smile and I refused to smile. <laughs> and I'm like, it's basically like, fuck you. I'm not smiling. I'm like, it's going to be sassy. <laughs> and I have no idea where that comes from. <laughs> they gave up after like an hour of trying to get me to smile. And I think that kind of set the tone mm. for me and my life. Yeah. And yes, it comes very useful because a lot of the stuff that I am battling or coming up against is conditioning that is very deeply ingrained within me, within a lot of South Asian women. And it doesn't matter whether you're first, second, third generation, you carry the same kind of programming. Mm. I think of it as cultural programming. So it doesn't matter, you know, how many degrees you have or how amazing you are at your job. At the end of the day, you know, your worth kind of as an Asian woman is determined by, are you married? Have you got children? You know, all, all these kind of things. Yeah. And and also, I think where you'll meet in other South Asian women. Tell us about when you started to meet other South Asian women and you started to realise that you weren't alone in this thinking. So I started to um, Masala Podcast before Masala Podcast existed. Masala Monologues existed. So it was like Vagina Monologues for South Asian Women. And I started mm. that and I got a lot of South Asian women to kind of come into these workshops and we talk about taboos in the culture and talk about their experiences around those taboos. And I coach them on how to write, you know, like a narrative. So kind of take something that potentially was painful around a taboo and then put it into like a story. And talking about it, that in itself, there was such common ground between all of us you know, pretty much come up against similar things. And that theme keeps coming up in Salah Podcast, in the conversations that I have at the events that I run, on social media when people contact me. So they are similar. They are around kind of our worth. They are around what is considered a success for us as South Asian women. What is acceptable? What is not? You know, it's the same sort of themes. And I think when we are vulnerable with our, our own story and our own kind of pain sometimes, because this stuff isn't easy. I mean, to challenge something, say that your parents tell you who you love very much, but you've got to stand up for yourself and to say, look, I love you, but that's not my path. It's, it's, it's painful work. So when you hear that other women, say like me, are doing it, or someone else is talking about it on the podcast, it makes us feel less alone. Mm. The battle is less lonely. Yeah, definitely. Do you get any backlash? Like, do you, when people find out what all these lovely women are talking about, do you get any backlash from, from other people, from outsiders, from men? <laughs> Surprisingly not. Okay. So I don't know, I keep waiting. And when I started the podcast, I was like, I'm sure I'll get like random Indian men telling me, you know, know your place and all of this crap. But mm. surprisingly hasn't happened as much as I expected it to. And it's made me wonder, like, I wonder if they know deep down that actually this is the right way, that we should have been doing this all along. Yeah. Or they're just, you know, they don't want to, they're too scared of strong, feisty women and they don't want to get involved. I don't know which of it is. <laughs> Either way, I'm happy. Like, just leave me alone to do my work. Like, don't mess around. <laughs> and what are the who are the bad baiters i mentioned them in your intro so who are the bad baities and the bad baiters so the bad baity is a trope and it exists i think across every culture so it's the 
the good daughter is the good beti. So we're brought up, in particularly in my culture, and I think a lot of cultures, that women are these good daughters, good wives, good sisters, good friends. And that means we don't stray outside this kind of little box we're put into. And mm. anybody that doesn't conform or fit into that box becomes a bad beti. And growing up in kind of India in the 80s, there was a lot of Bollywood film around shaming women, calling them bad daughters, bad, you know, shameless women, hussies, this, that, you know, Besharam, Batamis, anybody that talks back is called Batamis. So I use bad beti almost like as a, as a shortcut to communicate anybody who doesn't conform. Mm. So anybody that's gone outside of the norm, anybody that's spoken too loudly, anybody that sort of said, you know what, that doesn't suit me, so I'm not going to do that. Mm. Or you know what, I'm going to challenge you on that is a bad beti. Yeah. And, and I love that as an idea for us, that this thing that's been used to put us down, keep us in our place, we're taking that and we're saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm a bad beti and I'm really proud of it. Yeah. What have you got to say about it? You know, like it's suddenly owning it <laughs> and it's got this energy about it. So anybody that doesn't conform is a bad beti. Is female identifying? You don't even need to be born female, but if you identify as female and you're not following the systems and structures that society has set up for you as a female, you're a bad beti and you're, you're my friend. <laughs> <laughs> How about your family? How do your family react to you coming out and being this bad beti boss bitch? <laughs> well, that's interesting because they don't say anything. <laughs> So there's complete silence. And I always talk about this. So if I put up a picture of me, I don't know, drinking a coffee on Facebook, I get loads of like, oh, my God, looks amazing. Coffee, where is it? Blah, blah, blah. The minute I put up anything about my work, there is complete and utter silence. And I think that tells you a lot mm. about kind of the perception. So I think it's within the broader family still. Yeah. I've got lots of uncles and aunts and, you know, people like that. I haven't got a very big immediate family. But broader family, yes. But I don't think they know what to make of me or what to even say to me. Mm. But fortunately for me, I'm kind of out of that and I don't need to, you know, I'm not dependent on anybody for anything anymore. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. So I'm not getting accolades from any of them, but I wasn't expecting that anyway. So Yeah, is that is that hard for you or is that just like, well, I wasn't expecting it. So, it's you know, you know what? I've done this my entire life. I've been battling these structures. I've been calling things out since I was 15. It's a long time to be doing it. Mm. And I'm used to it now. And I think it would probably shock me if somebody from, say, my uncle or a cousin came and said, oh, my God, I love that podcast episode you did. I'm like, whoa, what's happening? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's... Um, I guess it's hard, but I think I've got used to it so much that I don't expect anything else. Mm. And I know what my path is and I know what my journey is. This is very much, I was born to do this. Like I feel that very strongly. Mm. It's almost like a spiritual path. Like I feel like this is why I'm here. And this is my purpose. This is my journey. And this is why I have always done this. Yeah. So it's almost not worrying about what the kind of reactions of it are, if that makes sense. And just doing, following the path. And you're talking about like South Asian women and British South Asian women. And look, sex education is terrible the world over. But <laughs> I think with a lot of South Asian cultures, there is the stereotype that it's that it's 
basically very misogynistic is that is that true is there what the, what was the kind of sex education you grew up with <laughs> zero <laughs> <laughs> i learned about sex through cutting up women's magazines and going into like the agony aunt columns and trying to like make sense of this thing i knew there was this thing that was really big but nobody was telling me about it so i started reading these things and i'm like oh okay so oh okay so next week's information would get filed in my head and i found this picture what were the kind of things the agony aunts were saying i don't know like my husband wants too much sex or whatever or i'm a virgin and it hurts or whatever and i'm like oh what is that thing oh what hurts how does it hurt and I yeah. didn't even know, I knew nothing because we had zero sex education. It just didn't exist. Yeah. And there was no Netflix. There was none of these things or the internet or porn or any of these things. We didn't have access to any of it. So I had to put a lot of things together to get a picture of sex. And one day I figured it out. I said, like, oh my God, that happens. <laughs> and I remember being absolutely horrified. Like, oh my God, people do that? <laughs> Why do they do that? <laughs> I must be like, I don't know, 12 or something, you know, it's very late, you know, I was a very late bloomer, but those were the times that I grew up in. Yeah, so it is, in answer to your question, yes, sadly, it is still very misogynistic. Mm. Uh, it is still very shaming, um, I think, female sexuality, female pleasure, it's just not discussed within the culture. Mm. Um, a woman who is keen to explore her pleasure is labeled a slut or is labeled loose or is labeled not worthy of respect. It's still very much the case. It's so weird that I, I saw this article this morning on one of the Indian papers that said young unmarried women, 5% of them have sex versus like 25% of young men of the same age are having wow. sex. So, you know, it's very much ingrained in the culture, this kind of concept of purity of kind of protecting yourself of like, it's something that you, kind of give to your husband once you're married you know like these kind of and it's something you put up with sex is not something mm. you ask for or you desire or you get pleasure from it's kind of very deeply ingrained and it's a real shame because looking at where we come from I mean we are the culture that created the Kama Sutra we are the culture that created Tantra yeah. it's beautiful and it's sexual and it's full of descriptions of women having orgasms and female pleasure and how to pleasure mm -hmm. a woman in a million different ways. You know, that was considered the duty of every um, cosmopolitan man. Mm. You had to please the woman you were with, you know. Uh, there were books written like the Kama Sutra much later. There's something called Anangaranga, which was written for married couples. And it was a husband's sacred duty to give his wife pleasure. You know, it's like one of the kind of fundamentals yeah. of marriage was that. And it was his job. To ensure she, she had an orgasm. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? That should be in the vows. <laughs> that should be in the divorce papers, in the prenup. Absolutely. Like, I'm sorry, I want a divorce because my <laughs> orgasm percentage was only 20% last month. So that's good enough. <laughs> Done. Granted. <laughs> you get the house. Fine. Wow. <laughs> house car everything yeah but that's such a great thing to remember though i think we always forget that yeah it is it is the home of the karma sutra tantra spiritualism all these things where you link yes. sex to spirituality to your body yes. to joy to absolute yeah oh my god yes. and 
here we are just trying to get a couple of free tampons for the girls. Like, come on. I know. I know. I know. So I always say, anybody that says to me, sex isn't part of Asian culture. Like, buddy, look at your own history. Look at the books you've come from. Look oh. at your heritage. Sex is very much part of our culture. It's just we've lost the way, I think. That is such a smackdown. I love it. That's such a comeback to be able to point to the Kama Sutra in ancient history and just go, yeah, there you go. Where do you think that came from? (laughs) (laughs) I love that it's all coming back like you're doing. It's like the digital Kama Sutra now. And you've got the, the Masala podcast where you can talk about all these things openly and Tell me about the guests. What is it like getting guests? Do you find that they're they're happy to come on and talk about these things or is there still a bit of reticency? I don't even know if that's a word. Sorry if it's not. <laughs> or, we can make up words as we like, yeah, can we? Yeah, fuck it, fine. Yes, they are. They are. And after sort of the podcast is kind of won awards and it's kind of been in the media and things, I now get people approaching me, which is lovely. As you know, as a podcaster, when you start out, yeah. you're chasing and chasing and trying to get guests. So it's lovely to have people's PR kind of companies get in touch to say so-and-so wants to be on your podcast, which is amazing. And what I do find is when they do come on, including some of the high-profile guests, you know, I do worry sometimes, like, is it just going to be like a media version of what they want to talk about? You know, like the kind of sanitized version. But I've been really pleasantly surprised. I've yet to have a guest who is kind of well-known and high-profile who doesn't come on and really then be vulnerable and be kind of authentic and talk about the pain. Because oh. I think that's what it's about. Because when other people hear that, they feel okay to sort of say, oh my God, you know, that that pains me too. I feel that too. Yeah. So I've been really pleased and really, really honored really that that my guests have opened up and talked about quite difficult, painful, deeply emotionally difficult things, you know. They've talked about, I've had a guest talk about being abused by her father from the time she was fairly little to to her teens. I've had uh, another guest talk about being sexually molested. You know, so they are talking and they are open and they are vulnerable. Mm. And I think as a podcast host, and you must understand this as well, like it's our job to create that sense of safety for them. Yeah, so they feel able to then talk as much as they want to, but not too much, so that they feel unsafe. And I think that's us. That's very much on us. Yeah, because they are trusting you, you know, with their story, with their emotions, with their vulnerability. So I take that very seriously as well. So I will never kind of probe more than they want to. You know, like I, I can feel my way, and I know where the lines are, and yeah. I always kind of I can stay within them. And the result is always a beautiful honest, vulnerable, empathetic interview, I think. And I feel very, very grateful to have that. Yeah, and you should feel so proud as well, like to be able to do that with all the guests that come on and to be able to create that safe space where, like you said, where they can talk. And sometimes the the task isn't knowing when to talk, it's when to not talk and allow them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that is so key. Like anybody that talks to me about podcasting and interviewing, mm. I always say it's not about you asking the questions. It's about giving them, your guests, the space mm. to really 
open up in a way that they feel comfortable yeah. and that's the skill yeah and you've and you've spawned like i can imagine probably lots of other south asian podcasts i bet there's been so many women that have listened to your podcast to the masala podcast and then gone oh i want to do this and what i love about podcasts is there's room for everyone there's you know everyone's got like a, a phone with a load of memory on that they can listen to you know everyone's point of view absolutely and I think exactly like you said there's room for all of us mm. and I believe there have been a lot of podcasts kind of I think since Masala podcast started and that's wonderful to see mm. I've also started podcasting masterclasses because I want other women like me oh like brilliant marginalized women South Asian women black women queer women to start podcasting yeah because I think it's amazing opportunity like I think of it as a really democratic medium where anybody with a phone can just start a podcast and when have we had that we've had gatekeepers before haven't we where you're like oh have you been to Oxbridge and who do you know and the BBC or whatever you know Mm. and now we don't need to know anyone we don't need anybody to give us permission to create an amazing podcast that resonates with our community Mm. And isn't that wonderful to then learn the skills? So I feel very strongly about podcasting. And I've always felt this as this amazing new kind of revolutionary tool that we've got as marginalized communities to talk about stuff that we need to talk about that we've not been given space to talk about before. Mm. And it's kind of within our grasp almost. And, you know, I want to use this opportunity to kind of coach other women like me to create other podcasts yeah and we're still in the like it's 2022 and we've still got radio stations who won't put an authentic south asian accent on we still have radio stations who won't allow two women to present a a show because they sound similar so this is oh i'm sorry i'm on my soapbox now but (laughs) no 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 no. please please carry on and i feel very strongly when you were talking i could feel like this anger in my body and i really feel so strongly about this it's like you know our voices and our accents are policed yeah because if we don't fit in into this very very narrow space right we're not allowed in like when I started podcasting I used to find myself thinking, oh my god I sound sound too Indian in that I'm like so what's wrong with that yeah you know because I've been taught that the only accent that's acceptable is is someone who's gone to Oxbridge like that's the only yeah you know um respected acceptable kind of way to speak but that isn't true people can sound like me people can sound like you people can sound like all sorts of things and we have to represent britain today and our country today is hugely cosmopolitan has a rich array of accents and experiences and communities and we've got a and our media doesn't reflect that yeah yeah Really doesn't. Yeah. And podcasting is a way in, I think, where we don't need gatekeepers. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a very difficult question now. If we've got listeners who are South Asian women, British South Asian women, who are the people who should be coming to the Masala podcast? If they've got that sort of, what's that feeling that, because I can tell you've got a feeling inside you and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) I need to rebound. I need to break out this box. I think, yes, yes. That, that feeling's a very old, very familiar feeling. But if you're listening to this and you're a South Asian woman or you're from any ethnicity, it doesn't really matter. But if you have the sneaking feeling that, you know what, this is crap. Like somewhere in your head, you're like, that thing you're telling me, that's bullshit. 
oh, mm. you're stopping me from really living my life or being happy. You're stopping me from feeling things or telling me that these feelings that I have are not acceptable, are wrong. That's rubbish. Whether that's to do with your work, whether that's to do with your body, whether that's to do with sex, whether that's to do with kids, whatever that is to do with. And if somebody's making you feel less than, if somebody's making you feel shame, if somebody's making you feel like, oh, that's your little place. Why don't you sit there? You know, like a little pat on the head. That's bullshit. Like just come to, I mean, there's a lot of us. So there's Masala Podcast, there's Soul Sutras. There are so many activists. Like just come to us and power yourself up with what you hear. And then you will find that that gives you the strength to go into your own life and challenge some of this stuff and to say, hang on a minute, that's not going to fly. Hang on a minute, you can't say that. Hang on a minute, you can't say that that's not my right. You know? So these are the kind of people mm -hmm. I want listening to Masala Podcast, to kind of any other activists out there. And I also don't think it's, it's just South Asian women because I think women have been, and still in 2022, are continue to be put in our little place unless you're I don't know a size eight wide skinny attractive successful person like you're not supposed to have a right to pleasure have the right to success mm. have a right to kind of be proud be happy be whatever you know in the world and a lot of this is very subliminal it's conditioning you pick up a magazine and if you don't look like that you're like oh my god maybe I'm not good enough hot enough successful enough worthy enough whatever and I think podcasts like mine and others in that space are where you come to to kind of soak it up and understand that it's okay to challenge. What you're feeling is good. What you're feeling is actually necessary for any change to happen. So come to people like me, power up, and then go and fight with the world. <laughs> soak it up. Power up, change the world. That's your bumper sticker. Change the world. Brilliant. That's it. <laughs> right there. <laughs> oh, Sagita, thank you so much. What a lovely chat. I really enjoyed it. Where can people find you? What are your socials? So if you look for me on Instagram or Twitter, look for Soul Sutras, or go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk, or you can email me, it's simple, email at soulsutras.co.uk. Uh, drop me a line, find me on socials, say hello. It will be an absolute pleasure and joy to hear from you. Thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you so much. This has been great fun. My thanks to Sangeeta Pillai there. Oh my God, what a joy. I really love talking to her. I really love talking to a fellow rebel. You can just tell that she's got that light going on and she's not going to stop until she's changed the world. How fantastic. I really loved what she was saying about the, the Karma Sutra and how South Asian culture has been around sex and, and has had about has had female empowerment and pleasure right at the heart of its sexuality since, you know, 4th century BC. And then, <laughs> and then people just ruined the party. How rude. But what a clapback to be able to turn around to people and say, 
we've got the Kama Sutra, bitch. Um, and <laughs> and to remind people that that sexuality and sex and female pleasure is all is all part of it. Sorry, I'm waffling now because I'm really excited. And uh, that was such a joyful chat. So, yes, she's got the Soul Sutras. Have a look on there. There's some fascinating articles and it's a great blog. And she's got so many things going on. And, of course, the Masala podcasts. I'm coming for your award, Sangeeta. I'm coming. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Smut Drop. If you've enjoyed your weekly dose of oral Viagra, then please leave me a lovely review. And you can always get in contact, ask me any questions by sliding into my DMs at Miranda Kane on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram. Or you can email any comments, queries, guest suggestions. If you want to come and be on the show, just email smutdrop at metro.co.uk. I've been Miranda Kane. Smut Drop was produced by Pineapple Audio Production for metro.co.uk and I'm going to be back to prick up your ears next week. <laughs>